0: to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. I'm Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm recording this intro today from Los Angeles. and visiting family and friends and also recording a few podcast episodes down here. It's been so fun to collaborate with people, to have these conversations, and to record them and share them. It really feels like a... A continuation or like an advancement of something that I already liked doing, which is having conversations with people, um, but to turn it into this kind of new art form. I've also been really enjoying your guys' feedback on the show. I'm very excited to be sharing this episode with you guys. I interviewed Becca Tarnas, scholar and archetypal astrologer. She recently received a PhD in philosophy and religion at the California Institute of Integral Studies, which is where we met. And her dissertation is called The Back of Beyond The Red Books of C.G. Jung and J.R.R. Tolkien. She is a deeply imaginative intellectual and a talented astrologer. When we had this conversation, I honestly felt like a portal to another universe opened up, and the times I have spent with Becca share this character. It may be the Sagittarius stellium, her son, is a part of, that this vast universe opens up. She's definitely a really magical person, and we had a great time recording this episode. It was honestly enchanting. And a quick note on good astrology practice, I only share her astro information because it's up on her website, and she freely discloses that information. Whenever it comes to the chart details of people or personal things that people tell me, I have a strict code of confidentiality unless I have permission to share and that's very standard astro practice. In this episode, we talked about the nature of archetypes, the current Saturn-Pluto conjunction, and how we've been seeing that manifest. We also talked about the planetary combinations of Venus through the pairings that Venus makes with the Sun, Moon, Mercury, and so on, all the way out to Pluto. And then at the end, we wrapped back around to Saturn and Pluto by talking about the triple combination of Venus, Saturn, and Pluto. I honestly feel transformed by this conversation, and I imagine that any astrologers or astrology enthusiasts out there will also take something away from this episode that enhances your understanding of Venus, and honestly, don't we all love to get to know Venus? To really get into the juiciness of this episode, you probably need to know how to tell what planets you have in aspect to Venus. So those are things like Venus conjunct, sextile, square, opposition, and trine, other planets. I'm guessing that a lot of you listeners here are into astrology, but I won't assume. So in case you don't know off the top of your head what planets you have an aspect to Venus or what your friends and lovers Venus aspects are, this would be a really good time to geek out on astro.com. Perhaps try their free chart called Astro Click Portrait and take a look around. The software on this site will tell you what Venus is touching in your chart And you can click on the symbol that is Venus, which is the symbol for female. Also, you may recognize it as such. And when you click on it, it will tell you what you have an aspect to Venus. If you don't have an accurate birth time and you're using like noon or something like that, the aspects to Venus will be accurate for the most part, except for Venus aspects to the moon or things like the Ascendant or Midheaven. But you'll still get information about Venus maybe is aspecting Jupiter or Pluto or something in your chart, and then you'll be able to tune in, especially to those parts of this conversation and see how it might apply to you. And with that, here's our conversation. Hey, Becca, thanks for coming on the show with me. It's my delight. I'm honored to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you about Venus today and astrology. Um, First, I want to ask you how you got into astrology and what it has been like to be on an astrological path and maybe how it's morphed into this current moment. I would love to share that. Um, My astrological
1: path in some ways has been lifelong. I am a second generation astrologer, so... um, My dad's an astrologer. My mother was pretty well versed in astrology. So it was language that was going on in the background of my childhood, but no one taught it to me. I did have kind of a vague interest in it. I think when I was about six years old, I asked my dad for a reading, and I remember him. Explaining things about my chart in the context of myths. So he was explaining the qualities of the planets in terms of gods and goddesses that I knew from myths and stories that I was learning as I was growing up. But it wasn't something that I took a very strong interest in. I definitely never had any intention for it to become such a central part of my life as it actually is now. And I took that unexpected turn a little after I graduated from college for my undergrad degree. And I started taking an interest in the work that my dad was doing and my own studies, which seem unrelated of, um, I did environmental studies and theater in college. And it started opening up these questions around, Worldview and the ecological crisis, and how did we get here? And really wanting to understand the bigger picture and paradigms. And so that led me kind of back home and wanting to understand what work it was uh, that my dad was doing. And that introduced me to astrology and the language of astrology. And then I met the students in the philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program at CIS, and was just totally taken in by this community of learners and um, astrologers and seekers after um, wisdom and understanding and felt very embraced by this group of people and so curious about what they were doing and learning. So uh, that led me down the road of learning the techniques of astrology and um, and then in my own um, uh, in my own contemplative practice, it began to really deepen my relationship to um, the planetary archetypes and seeing this more seeing astrology as more than um, a just a tool, but really as a way of knowing and being and orienting to the world and to the cosmos. So
0: that's a little bit of the journey that I went on. Oh, awesome. I really feel that um, astrology is a way of life. I'm curious how studying astrology came back around and maybe added insight to your original questions about worldview and the ecological crisis and our current situation. It put it in a context that of larger
1: meaning. So I was I wasn't exposed to ideas of say the evolution of consciousness or seeing how um, paradigm shifts unfold and until coming to uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies and also to astrology and. Um, holding a symbolic and an archetypal lens in relation to the unfolding of history is what started to let me see something like the ecological crisis in a larger context. And that it wasn't just this random moment in history, which is how it kind of felt to me when I was first encountering the the more scientifically presented data as I was learning it later in high school and especially in college as an environmental studies major. It was like, um, especially at that time, although I think it's actually still very much the case, it, it's not presented in a way um, that you can digest this information emotionally or psychologically. You're learning about it in terms of, um, these are the facts, this is the data, um, people are in denial about it. And, um, within the context of astrology too, and especially our current moment right now, as we're, uh, in this Saturn-Pluto conjunction, world transit, and really feeling how, since that alignment has come into orb in, in the collective transits, the situation has felt more dire, more at the forefront of people's awareness in a way that it really hasn't been before. There's been this, this kind of peaking. And I think it brings up, um, you know, on the one hand, feel fears around the struggle for survival, which, can connect to Saturn-Pluto themes, but also around um, the protection and preservation and care for nature and the natural world, which is also expressive of Saturn-Pluto themes and how that Saturn-Pluto archetypal complex can pull out of us this moral and ethical stance in um, relation to what can feel like a very dire situation. So, um I guess at this point it's kind of given me this perspective that um, what is unfolding right now is simultaneously very real, very serious, needs to be addressed and is part of a larger movement and that's where I feel like I can take a sense of courage in relation to whatever is unfolding um, being, feeling held in a larger cosmological context of meaning rather than being on on earth that is overheating in a cosmos that doesn't care about us because it's a meaningless rock floating in space so that shift in paradigm has really helped um, me find a sense of emotional and psychological and spiritual grounding in the face of the rather terrifying things that are unfolding in the world around us.
0: Wow, that's super powerful. And um, this makes me wonder, and I may edit this out, if we should talk about Saturn-Pluto instead of Venus. Um I mean we can we could do both.
1: I mean we could touch a bit more on Saturn-Pluto, but keep Venus at the heart and maybe we can talk about Venus, Saturn, Pluto
0: too. <laughs> which has really been on my mind. So I don't know if that feels right. Okay, let's do that. So um, yeah, we were planning on talking about Venus. And now that we've brought in Saturn-Pluto, I just have to totally pause here and talk about and unpack Saturn-Pluto. I've talked about it a few times on the podcast. And I think just to set up some ground for it before we get there, um, what is archetypal astrology? And how do we... Combine planetary energies.
1: Mm.
0: Essentially, archetypal astrology is an approach to
1: astrology that understands all the meanings that are associated with um, the planets, the aspects, and I would say it's applicable to the, the signs, the houses as well, as those meanings aren't simply um, keywords or specific topics or terms that are Um, ascribed to those planets or aspects or signs and so forth, but rather there's a coherent sense of related meaning for each one. So since uh, Venus is one of our themes for this conversation, when we describe what The meanings are that are associated with the planet Venus. We talk about beauty and we talk about aesthetics and art, and we also talk about love and desire and attraction and pleasure and romance and so forth. You know, the list can go on, but we can start to really intuit that there's something holding all of those together, that all of those different descriptive words that come to us in these particulars they have a universal standing behind them that unifies them and that's what is called an archetype and we get that term from from plato from platonic philosophy and the way plato meant it was that there is a realm of ideal forms that each one of those forms is expressed in the particular so he'll give the example of a horse, every individual particular horse is participating in the archetype or the form of horseness. Um, likewise, anything that's the color green is participating in that ideal form or archetype of green, but it comes through in all these specific expressions. And the way that archetypal astrologers use that term, archetype, they're not just using it in the platonic sense that there's this ideal realm of forms that is separate from the world around us. It's also drawing on many other different philosophical and psychological perspectives, probably most importantly, um, the depth psychological work of Carl Jung. So the understanding of psychological archetypes, that archetypes are within the psyche or part of the collective unconscious. Um, they're not just in some ideal realm elsewhere and so that same idea is applicable in terms of astrology and that each of those multi-worded meanings is really unified in an archetype and i would say we can even be in relationship to that archetype and Understand what particular expressions are of it that we may never have encountered before. Um, you can see something that you've never seen before, but recognize that it's beautiful. And in that moment, you recognize the presence of Venus, of that archetype that's there.
0: So beautifully said. Mm. Thank you. And so all of these planets are archetypes in a sense. And when we're talking about planetary aspects or planets that are in combination with each other, how can we combine archetypes? Mm. It's almost like making a more complex archetype um,
1: that by bringing two different planetary archetypes in combination, which is, of course, what we see in people's birth charts or in transits and so on, we see how those very different energies relate to each other and inform each other. And it can be kind of one acting upon the other, or it can be a, a kind of perfect blend of the two, where you can barely even differentiate one from the other. And yet they form, I guess what you could say is a more um, dynamic or complex Archetype, rather than the the singular one that you would identify as correlated with just one of the planets.
0: Yeah, I think it's really awesome to learn archetypal astrology and get the understanding of how to combine archetypes because it's not just about reading in a book. What does Venus and Pluto together mean? It's having a sense of Venus and Pluto, and then imagining and feeling into how they interact with each other, and it's. I think it's liberating to know that it it can be imaginal in that sense because astrology is not something where all the combinations are written about. It's impossible, but yeah. Um, when it comes to Venus, since that's who we're talking about today, what's Venus's archetype? I guess you already mentioned a few keywords, um, but a little bit more about that and how we can connect with Venus intentionally. Mm. Something else um, that I'll add, to to what you
1: said about that imaginal relationship is that there's also an affirmation of intuition. I think that the more we deepen into our understanding of what the archetypes are and what their multifaceted and multivalent expressions can be, the more we develop our intuition of those possibilities. And this is what James Hillman the archetypal psychologist called the archetypal eye. And I think that astrology can actually be a practice that can really develop and validate our intuition because it's working with a symbol system that then reinforces or reaffirms when we're doing research, when we're working with clients, when we're studying our own chart or friends that, oh, that I had this intuition that this is how these two planets might combine. And sure enough, there's the particular example. And sure enough, I see it in all these other charts. So you, I think that it's really valuable in that sense in how it can reaffirm our intuitive capacities. Because there isn't a lot in our contemporary society and certainly not in mainstream education that teaches you how to value your intuition or lets you do research, rigorous research that can validate what you intuitively know. So that's my little side, side note five. on intuition. <laughs> <laughs> um and now to Venus. Um the
0: Can you remind me of your question again? <laughs> yeah. So what's the archetype of Venus? And then mm. I how would we participate with Venus? Like what are some ways to connect with Venus? So the archetype of Venus, I
1: did mention some of the kind of primary words that we would associate with Venus, such as love, beauty, desire, aesthetics, um, attraction, pleasure, um, art, artistic creativity, in that sense, like all of the arts, um, anywhere that you're going to find Beauty, or that you are going to feel love. It's oriented toward the heart, the heart chakra, um, and of course, how that how that is expressed is going to depend on who Venus is in relationship with, or what Venus is in combination with, whether it's another planet or what sign it's in, and so on. And in terms of how we connect with Venus, I think the heart is a very good place to begin. Um, Where we feel love, where we feel desire, where we feel uh, attraction and a sense of pleasure in relation to something or someone. And there's also, there's the the surface quality of Venus beauty is expressed on the surface, the surface of our our physical appearance, or our um, clothing, or or aesthetic sensibility, or how we create our spaces. So, the aesthetics of uh, our homes or our workplaces, or um, the art that we're drawn to, the artistic forms, whether that is the content of that art or the medium or both or all of it. And then at a more mythological level, when we think of Venus, we can think of Aphrodite in the Greek pantheon, we can think of Freya in the Norse, we can think of Ishtar, we can think of Inanna, there are so many different expressions of the the goddess or god of love, um, and of course the the goddess or god of beauty as well, and and in in terms of ways to honor Venus, I think it's very personal in some ways, like how I'm drawn to. Be in relationship to Venus would be very different than someone with a very different natal chart or different expression of Venus in in their life, and I think that even changes in terms of like what planets we might have transiting Venus. Um, but it would be making. I, mean, I can hear my own natal chart biasing anything I'm going to say here, <laughs> um, but you know, how we make ourselves or our space beautiful, how we show up in relationship. I think that's probably one of the key things because Venus rules romantic relationship and it rules friendship as well. So how we show up in the relationships that matter most in a heart centered sense.
0: I love that. I, so I'm Venus in Pisces and I'm I've been wearing these rose-tinted glasses today in a very literal surface sense, Mm -hmm. but I felt very connected to my Venus placement by wearing them because I associate Venus and Pisces with an idealist or the rose-tinted glasses metaphor. Um, But sometimes I think about when clients are wanting to fall in love or connect with their heart more, that we can look to Venus in the chart for clues. Um, Or if it's just you know, even relationship problems or Venus related problems, it could be a way of nourishing those placements where maybe they're malnourished and those relationship dysfunctions or the feeling of the lack of love is coming through that malnourished Venus.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like those Venus placements or Venus transits can be such a key to understanding what someone's going to show up in relationship with uh inherently what their patterns are their wounds are and so forth and um and also within that same signature is often the you know the medicine to the wound as is so often said um of how to redirect those energies in ways that can be connecting or healing. I mean, I think in looking at synastry between couples, for example, when there's um, a tension or something that isn't being worked out, if two people have very different Venus aspects, that's like you're going to love in different ways. Um, you know, if we think of the idea of love languages, which I think is such a fascinating idea that we all have different love languages and, Two people might be drawn to each other because they have the same love language. Two other people might be drawn to each other because they have opposite love languages, but they have to figure out how to translate between them. And yeah, Venus placements can really help in
0: identifying what those are. So let's talk about Venus in combination with the other planets. And so, as I understand, Venus would be. Influencing these planets and then the planets are also influencing Venus. So Venus might add like grace to Mm. all of these other planets. And then these planets are adding their qualities into Venus. So it's kind of like a soup of some kind or some, but, um, Yeah. And then for listeners, you know, tuning into which one of these placements you have, or maybe even you connect with, because I know sometimes we have planets in minor aspect, like I have Venus-Saturn in semi-square, and I didn't know that for 10 years. And when I learned about Venus-Saturn, I could connect to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had had a pattern where almost everyone that I've been in partnership with has Mm Venus-Saturn. And I was like, what's this for? Oh, I have Venus-Saturn too. I just didn't know it. So... I think that's so interesting when we
1: discover some hidden part of our chart that we didn't know we had before. And then we awaken to it in this moment where I guess we're meant to learn then what it's been trying to teach us, or in your case, you're calling it in um, until you realize, oh, this is a part of me. And that's so much of what happens in, in terms of relationship. I mean, if we draw in depth psychology, we call in a mirror of our own soul in order to discover who we are. And then, you know, ultimately you hope you can withdraw the projection from the other person and really see who they are and be in a genuine partnership rather than a, kind of a fascination
0: with the mirroring of your soul. Um, but Oh, anyway. That's so well said. That just got me all like sparkly eyed. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thinking about that on the way here. Just mm-hmm. like people that had a huge impact on me when I was younger. And then those qualities are now things that I strongly feel within myself, but I met them through the other first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we
1: meet people. This isn't even just the case with Venus. Um, i often found that I meet someone who is born with an aspect that I'm going through a transit of. And they, in some ways, introduce me to that archetypal complex and awaken it in me. And then I realize, oh, this is in me, it's also in them. But it's this discovery of a whole other part where we need the other person to help us tap into that or see, oh, this is how it can be lived.
0: It's so fun to know things like that, just in normal everyday life, like other people's aspects and then what transits you're going through, like it animates life in such a profound way.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, So what would you say about Venus combined with the sun? Mm. Well, Venus sun would be often
1: there is a central relationship to Venus in that one can have a strong sense of identification with or identity with those qualities of beauty or relationship, having relationship be a very central thing. Um, I've often met uh, Sun-Venus people who can be very diplomatic and wanting to create um, a loving environment where they can kind of shine at their best. I mean, that's one of the solar qualities of that's how we shine as individuals. So um, being able to step into one's sense of selfhood in a graceful way, as you brought up, or, um, you know, whether it's, dressing in such a way that really shows off one's Venusian qualities, one's beauty or uh, one's aesthetic taste. But it, it often has a really kind of central role because the sun has that central role. It's the center of the solar system. Um, I've seen too, there can be a self-valuing with, um, with Sun-Venus because that there can be a capacity to love oneself, Venus, as love gets turned toward the solar self, um, and they can radiate together in that in that way.
0: It's such a glittery combination. It feels so golden, and it's like love in the summertime or something like that. Absolutely, I notice like in when there's world transits of Sun Venus,
1: um, that sunsets will be especially like poignantly beautiful or you can notice scenes of beauty that are highlighted by the sunlight. So it can come through in this almost, um, literal way in those beautiful several days when they
0: are in, um, world transit. That's like literally magnificent. I love that. (laughs) And what about moon Venus? Mm.
1: Um, There's, I feel like more of a softness that's present there instead of the radiation of, um, the sun and the focus on the self. This becomes about the other. So with Moon Venus, there definitely can be like a sweetness, a sweetness to one's sensibility showing up with, um, like the heart and the emotions are so. Uh, intertwined with Moon Venus. And um, there can be a love of the lunar things like nurturance, the home, making a beautiful home space, um, a love of food, a love of sweet things. I have definitely seen um, Moon Venus come through as a sweet tooth. And um, it's something I have... Scene as well is sometimes when they're in hard aspect, um, like a square, there can be a tension between the two where if the moon is a uh, family and Venus is romantic love, sometimes there can be an tension that's present between one's family and, um, One's choice of partner, for example, like maybe there's disapproval or a split in responsibilities. I think that can be one of the more challenging ways that that can come through. Um, But they're both such relational archetypes. So in many ways, they combine really beautifully and can have that um, emotionally warm and loving quality present that's really kind of oriented toward the other, especially the close other, um, of, uh, family of, uh, you know, loving children or, um, having a loving, loving relationship with one's parents or close knit community.
0: Mm, yeah. That makes sense. What you put into about the different kind of aspects, um, stressful, non-stressful though, I guess I'm the labels are also interpretations. But um, I remember when I first was learning about astrology through cafe astrology when I was a teenager that the Moon-Venus aspects would often say something about one's relationship with their family. And if it was like a positive harmonious home growing up, or the natives' values were not in conflict with the family values under like a soft Moon-Venus, or like the tension, like you said, there could be some conflict between values in the home. Yeah. And I think like, that's also,
1: there can be differences in that from one person to the next, but also just in one person over the course of a lifetime. You know, there's tensions in one relationship and then those ease later in life. None of these, I think, are fixed over the course of a whole lifetime.
0: Totally. And speaking of not being fixed, (laughs) (laughs) Venus and Mercury. Mm. Um, There's
1: a There's something of a, um, how do I put this when I think of Venus and Mercury, you know, immediately what comes to mind is logos and eros. um, these very archetypal qualities, like the heart and the mind, um, the, the loving erotic feeling and, and the voice. And so again, that the way those can combine, um, a beautiful voice, a, a singer, someone who's eloquent with their words, someone who's silver-tongued and can talk themselves out of any situation. Um, I think of love letters, um, the speaking and loving communication, uh, valuing communication. Um, Mm -hmm. A love of books, a love of reading, a love of education, a love of learning. Um, That's all kind of Venus going toward Mercury. Um, Mercury going toward Venus would be a capacity to articulate um, one's feelings of love. I mean, even the phrase, I love you, is such a um, Mercury-Venus kind of phrase. It's putting into, capturing into mercurial words Uh, what arises in the Venusian heart. Um, There can be a a graceful use of language or language as art. Um, Poetry can be a very um, Mercury-Venus expression, for example.
0: I love that. I have (laughs) (laughs) Mercury-Venus. I do like love letters. Mm. Um, And... It's interesting because they're they're conjunct at the exact same degree. Mm-hmm. So they are very much one force. But I've noticed I've just been thinking recently about how there were certain things in my life that I was desiring or valuing, but I wasn't putting language to, and it wasn't really seeming to manifest. And it occurred to me during Gemini season, which we're in, to put words to it. Even if I write it in a diary or kind of cognize it myself, or when I express it, suddenly. It's much more accessible and I really was tuning into, oh, it's because I have a Venus-Mercury <laughs> conjunction. That, that makes so much sense. And I feel like in some
1: ways they um, have a close relationship, like we can hold them in this kind of equal measure in some ways, again, using those words, logos and eros, or even astronomically, or how we see it in uh, the birth chart, they can't get more than a sextile apart. Um, you're not going to have a Mercury Venus opposition ever. <laughs> and so we don't even know what that would look like or feel like it's, they're always in close relationship. And they often come back together because, love is meant to be articulated and um met, you know meant to be spoken about and given voice and so forth
0: that's cool it's like the rules of our universe don't really allow them <laughs> to get far apart yeah and that's the the thing with communication and relationship too how it's such a many people will say it's so crucial in yeah. relationship is communication um what about venus mars I mean, they also, I feel like they're
1: so, um, meant for each other. They're the archetypal lovers, the, um, dynamic couple, you know, if we look at Greek mythology where you have Aphrodite and Ares, and, um, are such polarities. I think this is of everything we've looked at so far. This is the first time we've seen kind of a, an opposition or a polarity where, um, Mars suddenly brings in this fiery, energetic, um, yang energy that is, um, assertive, that can even be aggressive, that of course can have its elements of, of violence and anger, but it's gonna bring action to the picture. And when action gets combined with desire and attraction. And I mean, suddenly you have the potent combination of, of a kiss of lovemaking of eroticism of dance of performance. Um, I see Venus Mars so often in the charts of musicians, dancers, uh, actors, people who are drawn to be on the stage. Um, like, if we think of Venus as a painting, this is something I've often said, if, if we think of Venus as a painting, Mars is going to make it move. And that's what dance essentially is. And so they, I feel like they really balance each other. But it's also, um, when you have dynamism, it's going to be, there's going to be tension there. There's going to be challenges and difficulties and um you know with venus mars you think of like the the fight between lovers that is completed by passionate lovemaking or something like that where they instigate each other and yet something exciting and new and erotic emerges from that <laughs>
0: It's so funny when you first were talking about Venus-Mars, this really strong image came to me of like a romance novel cover and I was trying not to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) It's like this bodice ripper quality. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think um, I've noticed in Sinistry that... hard aspects between venus and mars or hard aspects between mars can be really good for chemistry Mm -hmm. also can relate to like clashing of will or fighting a lot but that like chemistry definitely being there yeah Um, there's like a,
1: a a tension that's needed for um for that erotic component like a little bit of fire anger distance um you know, so often that feeling of, um, falling passionately, passionately in love with someone is accompanied by, you know, you hate them a little bit because you love them so much. <laughs> um, it draws out the, the warrior and, you know, what's, um, part of what's so exciting about a relationship isn't just falling in love. It's, it's the pursuit. It's the struggle. It's, um, the sense of like the warrior's quest on behalf of love. Um, So.
0: Yeah. I kind of imagine like if there's all Venus without Mars, so even taking out maybe some of the Martian elements of Venus herself, that it can just be like, there's a mellowness maybe Mm -hmm. and not that impulse to do something about it. And so Mars can be that courage to ask someone out or kiss them or, yeah, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but just that like the willingness to relate to someone else. Um, it's also reminding me to I had been thinking about this the other day about being like a teenage Aries, like it just struck me of like, oh, I was once a teenager and also an Aries, so Aries ruled by Mars. But I just remember how strong my desire was to experience relationship and it was so strong that... Any kind of anxiety I had about like flirting with someone was overcome by this kind of Mars sense of courage because I wanted it or desired it badly enough. And so I was just like laughing, thinking about it. Like it wasn't always fun to to be that age, but I was so bold in a way that I had no idea, but it was motivated by this like desire to connect. Mm. That's such a great example. Um, and the way you're speaking
1: about that too, with if you just have Venus, um, there can be a bit of a passivity to that. Like Venus is attraction. It, it attracts in, but there's something static there. Like, um, you can picture Aphrodite kind of lounging in her exquisite garden, attracting, but Without Mars, you don't have um, that spark for connection, as as you were saying, and um, and I think it's really important for you know because Venus and Mars often get um, polarized as um, masculine and feminine. I think a lot of that's breaking down now, and I think astrological language is really helpful for breaking those things down. Um, But we still have this kind of polarity of like the pursued and the pursuer, and that really we all need a blend of both. And this is why I do feel like these two archetypes belong together so well, Um, not just when you have it in sinistry, but like in an individual or when someone's going through a transit of it. Fortunately, we go through transits of Venus and Mars pretty frequently. So there's often these opportunities for um, connection in that way, in a social sense, in a romantic sense,
0: and so on. It's so true. How about Venus and Jupiter? Mm. Um, Watch your purse.
1: (laughs) Because I always find whenever um, I'm going through it, Venus Jupiter transit that suddenly I'm spending a lot of money on really beautiful things. And I just feel like, um, I want things to be so much more luxurious. <laughs> um, so, you know, here we have the two benefics together. They complement each other so well. And, um, Jupiter is going to magnify and amplify and, um, expand in this case, Venus, and so it really has this quality of of luxury and the finer things in life, the um, you know rich food and good wine and beautiful, pl- wealthy places and a sense of of beauty and abundance. Um, the astrologer Matthew Stelzner describes Venus-Jupiter as like the weekend in Paris transit. Um, and I just think that's such a perfect way of describing this very luxurious quality. Um, adds in the travel too. Adds in the travel, absolutely. Um, the, the love of... Um, of distant lands and foreign places, and of um, broadening one's experience and horizons, and a love of high culture, um, high art, I would say, with that as well, um, and a, you know, a shadow side of that, of course, is that when Jupiter expands too much, it becomes too big, it becomes too much, it becomes overwhelming. And um, one can kind of overindulge or overspend or drown in things in a consumerism that we don't really need. It just, it's never ending. Um, It's almost like in describing this, we're about to trigger in the next combination of Venus-Saturn. Because it's like if Venus, or if uh, when Jupiter grows too big, it calls in, it constellates the Saturnian. It calls in the boundaries and the limits and um, the expansion of Jupiter becomes too much and Saturn has to come in and say, no, time time to come back to reality. Um, But I would definitely say that combination of Venus and Jupiter has just such a... um, luxurious abundance to it. And in so many ways, it's pretty hard to go wrong with that one until you're overwhelmed.
0: (laughs) I used to think that maybe it would just be a Jupiter transiting, like Jupiter transiting natal Venus that would trigger it. But recently I had Venus um, over my Jupiter. And by recently, I mean in the fall, but I could feel it. It was like a um, expansive time of like really lavish Dinners and um, yeah, it was a a definite mood, but it's interesting how even transiting Venus, um, and I learned that from you actually because I remember we were it was when I had first gotten to PCC and you were helping everyone like orient to their natal chart. So I came to this workshop and then you had been talking about how like Venus transits or even the inner planets could be felt. And at that point I had thought that they were anecdotal, like, oh, you know, Venus, Mercury, transit, whatever. Like I had this kind of block in my mind about only kind of focusing on the outer planetary transits. And that notion completely went out the window from learning from you and from PCC and starting to tune into how like... um, if we're sensitive enough too, so whether it's through an altered state or we're just being receptive, you can feel the transits of the inner planets and the sun. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Jupiter is always, um, can be a really
1: lovely one to feel too. And that combination of Venus, Jupiter, it's, um, and when we get that by transit, it tends to Correlate with time periods of of greater abundance or a more open-hearted and gener- generous sense. Um, I know a number of people with Venus-Jupiter who are so generous in terms of, you know, gift giving and making beautiful space. And um, yeah, I think you brought up like um beautiful, delicious dinners. I think of like a long table lit with candles with dish after dish of beautiful food and like bright flowers on the table. And um yeah, it very much carries that mood. It's if you if you're going through a transit of Venus and Jupiter, that's the time to expand your social circle for sure.
0: Definitely. I think yeah I was having a Jupiter transit um in 2012 that um I didn't know how to read transits really by myself then so I was relying on what I was reading through interpretations and it told me to like go out and pursue it was a Jupiter Mars but it was saying go out and pursue Jupiter don't just wait for Jupiter to find you and so I did go out a lot and I was always meeting people and sure enough something did constellate um, but I think that that even under the influence of Jupiter one might be more open to exploring new things and feel more optimistic about what might happen if they go out or do something new. Definitely. Yeah. They're having that
1: optimistic attitude is so Jupiterian and um just a greater sense
0: of things will probably turn out okay. Yeah. You can trust it a little bit more. Optimistic about other people as well, like seeing the best in others or,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, holding
0: space for that. Yeah. Yeah, often people
1: born with that Venus-Jupiter can really carry a greater sense of, um, like, if you have a highly aspected Jupiter, there can just be a greater sense of optimism and and, um, celebratory quality as well um, that can be directed to anything in life, even the most difficult things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which, I guess, is a good segue for Saturn, <laughs> mm-hmm. though I love Saturn, so I don't want to just say it's difficult or anything like that, but what about Venus-Saturn? Mm-hmm. Um, I love
1: Saturn, too, and that's a very Venus-Saturn statement to make. Um, Here we are, <laughs> Venus-Saturn <are>. people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it can be a love of all those Saturnian things of hard work, valuing hard work, and having a, a love of putting ones back into something, and um, of being disciplined and focused, and um, you know, being able to cultivate good boundaries and relationship. Um, it can be. There's a like a marriage of form and function. With if we look to the aesthetic side of Venus Saturn first, that um, everything that is practical in one's life, often Venus Saturn people want them to be beautiful. But likewise, anything that's beautiful should have a practical value as well. Um, and so aesthetically, there can be a simplicity, a sparseness, pairing things down. I think of someone like. Um, Marie Kondo with her clearing out of, um, any possessions that don't bring joy. I mean, there's that Jupiterian element of joy, but, um, where there's really kind of a minimalism to one's taste and aesthetics and, um, the colors one wears a, you know, a common kind of way of dressing for a Venus Saturn person would be in all black or in muted colors or quiet colors or, um, keeping possessions for a long time and you know, particular things that you love, taking care of them, holding onto them for a long time, darning those clothes that you just don't want to let go of and um, really valuing things through time. Um, and then in terms of relationship, I mean, it can be a deep sense of commitment um heart commitment whether it's friendship or romance um being committed in the long term the sense of promise and responsibility and um being bonded through life but it can also be very painful endings and um a sense of loss, a sense of isolation within friendship or uh, romantic relationship. And uh, Saturn relates to pain. So, you know, a pain of the heart, having a guarded heart, having walls up, being very slow to open your heart. Um, It often, I think, can take Venus-Saturn people like a long time to open up to others and um, to form a deep bond. And then when they do it's, it's there for life. Um, it, it will last through so many tests. Um, so there really is that kind of, um, painful edge, but also a deep sense of, um, seeing things through to the end that, um, one can imagine relationship all the way up until death, which is such a kind of Saturnian uh symbol
0: it makes me wonder like currently socially like the idea of monogamy is kind of being like it's not just necessarily taken as a given maybe still in some places and whatever but it's more of a conversation and Venus Saturn strikes me so much as like a commitment signature um but now that there's all this kind of openness around it and people discovering what love really means to them um venus saturn almost it could take on new expressions because it's not necessarily just about i mean classic values could be one way of it but it also can be having a code or a standard and like that being something that is expressed in a person's love life or love language um The guarded heart is really interesting to think about also because in some sense, the heart thrives when open, but Saturn, it's like, what are the conditions of safety for that? Um, But Saturn can have this like crystallization process. So sometimes with Venus, Saturn, I think about like how to... um, Start to move towards opening the heart in ways that are safe for Saturnian, the codes, the boundaries are clear. It's like good boundary communication and relationships so that there's that, you know, possibility. And I think, um, not very Venus Saturn would be kind of like starting a relationship and let's just see where it goes. You know, it's like, let's talk about where this is going. Even if that conversation is about acknowledging that it's not necessarily going anywhere, but it's just that firmness I feel of relationship yeah. um, when they come together. Yeah. I completely agree with everything you're saying
1: in terms of, um, you know, it can be the guarded heart because often the guarded heart has been wounded, um, which also fits Venus-Saturn. And um, But what are the conditions that have to be met in order to um, open one's heart? And they often have to do with maturity. I mean, that's a big theme with Saturn, too, is maturity, wisdom, age as well. And so there can be... Um, I, I've worked with or met a number of Venus-Saturn people who um, will be in a relationship with someone much older than them because they feel their maturity level is met there Um, or certain needs of their heart can only be fulfilled by a more Saturnian figure or finding love late in life, um, waiting, waiting a long time for love Um, and seeing that unfold when one is in a more Saturnian time of life. Um, and then yeah, with the in terms of um like monogamy, traditional values of relationship, um, there can be that expression of Venus Saturn. But I think it's also right to say that um it doesn't necessarily have to be traditional, but there has to be a sense of um commitment, responsibility, and respect. To and you know, whatever those agreements are, so there's kind of a, a moral or an ethical uh code that gets connected to Saturn. Um, and then with Venus, Saturn will show up in relationship whether it is um following some more traditional relationship rules or creating your own, but there's often a need to have those rules there, whatever the relationship looks like, um, to know where the ground is, to know what the foundation is that the relationship's being built on.
0: Right. Respect is such a good word for that too. hmm And so then for Venus Uranus. Couldn't be more different.
1: <laughs> um, and the sequence we're going through of Venus Saturn, Venus Uranus, and then Venus Neptune, I have all of those in a stellium in my chart. So yeah, um, I can't help but speak from personal bias here. Um, but Venus Uranus can be, um, the, you know, the unusual expression of love, the unique expression of beauty, um, being highly, um, experimental and creative and always some exploring something new different ever-changing pushing the edges pushing uh the possible and um you brought up spark the word sparkly in terms of venus sun um if venus sun is sparkly venus Uranus is like beautiful fireworks just kind of dazzling and explosions of um you know bright and blinding color um it can be. (laughs) I mean, when I think of musicians, for example, who have Venus Uranus or, um, artists in some sense, there's, um, really a desire to experiment like, um, Lady Gaga, for example, is a great, so much. (laughs) Yeah. She's a great Venus Uranus example, like so many different ways of expressing, um, whether it's, different musical styles and genres and kind of an ever changing quality there to the totally bizarre outfits that she'll wear. Um, it's wanting to dress in bright colors, not wanting to conform or fit in aesthetically. I mean, that's where Venus Saturn and Venus Uranus couldn't be more different in terms of, um, an aesthetic expression. You have the Venus Saturn person dressed in all black and you have the Venus Uranus person wearing every possible color and dyeing their hair or changing their look, you know, every several months or something like that. Um, and then that can be applied to relationship as well, like a lover in every port or um being um falling in love quickly. That could definitely be a Venus Uranus experience where it's just like the Sudden um, spark of you just meet someone and then you're deeply in love with them, um, where it seems to come out of nowhere like this lightning flash.
0: How do you think people um, can work with that? Because I feel like going back even to Venus Saturn, like a normal way that we're supposed to, you know, all Saturn language, to fall in love there can be a a sense internalized also in culture that things have to develop over a certain time sequence. Mm -hmm. But Venus-Uranus, when it's instant, um, I think that it has this feeling of complete excitement and exhilaration and aliveness, and then also this edge of caution, like Mm that it could kind of burn quickly, burn out. Um, But for someone who has Venus-Uranus, it's probably also a path of owning that and learning how to relate to that in a way that is unique to them. Mm it could be helpful. I mean,
1: just if you know, you have that, um, that in itself can be helpful or validating of like, this is a tendency, um, to whether it's fall in love quickly or develop a crush quickly or, um, and it's, you know, that kind of Iranian quality, it's like a, a spark or a flame that needs space. It needs oxygen. And so I think, where it can be really challenging for a Venus Uranus person is to try and fit that, um, ever open and wanting to be awakened heart into a, a box, into a certain set of rules. This is where, um, it can be kind of hard to reconcile that, like Venus Saturn and Venus Uranus quality, um, where it's, there needs to be enough room for experimentation and play and openness. And that can unfold just you know between two people or in the context of um, a traditional marriage. It, maybe it takes the form of travel. Maybe it takes the form of um, artistic expressions of those qualities. Um, there are many different avenues, but um, it doesn't work well to try and stamp it out. Um, because it's such a highly creative aspect um, that if it's given room to breathe and explore and experiment, um, then a tremendous amount of creativity can open up. Um, And I think that if that's held in the container of a relationship, then it can really be nurtured there and kind of come come to life in, in really beautiful ways, whether it's couples exploring um, artistic expression together or dance together or going off on adventures with each other or um, just having that room to to play and um, do things differently.
0: Yeah, this is making me think too that um, a Venus Uranus person might – I mean, I think this is also a universal truth for anything Uranus and for the Uranus energy that anyone carries, Um, but that when we're expressive of who we actually are, that's how we can be in resonant relationship. Whereas if we're hiding who we are, we're using our creative energy to pretend to be something that we're not, we're not going to find that authentic mirror. And part of what can make Uranus Venus so electric, I think, is that meeting of a mirror who is playing with and nearing that intense Uranian spark within and it's like that excitement of meeting another unicorn basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it might be,
1: uh, a f- kind of a fast or very quickly unfolding dynamic too, but it can, um, set off like a chain reaction of sparks and creative energy between two people or within within someone or within a community as well um, but yeah I would say it's it's such a highly creative aspect in so
0: many different ways um, yeah I'm just. Hearing about this was sparking so many ideas for me, and it was very just Uranus in of itself, like the experience I just had internally. <laughs> I love how that happens when archetypal conversations occur. It's like Absolutely. you can't help but feel. And then Uranus, or not Uranus, um, Venus, Neptune. Hmm. Um, a
1: whole other world again. Um, I mean, Venus, Neptune, it brings together um it brings together beauty and divinity you know it's the beauty of the sacred and um the artistic expression of divine experiences spiritual experiences um uh religious expression it's the uh transcendent expression of um aesthetics and there can be a an otherworldly quality to that kind of expression of beauty so within art within painting for example or um there can often be a depiction of um sacred subjects or um fantastical subjects neptune brings in the whole realm of the imagination and enchantment and magic and and it's the beauty of that realm um, I think of someone like j r. r. tolkien uh who has Venus Neptune and um writes about the exquisite beauty of of an imaginal world of an other world and something like elves and fairies and mermaids and um all of these magical imaginal beings that are inherently beautiful um, and and then again, in terms of, um, you know, like aesthetic expression in clothing or something, it would be, um, you know, something that's almost not of this world, like veils and um, something that evokes a sense of the heavenly or of the divine, Um and then in terms of relationship, it can be certainly the uh, idealization of the other. What we were talking about earlier on of kind of the projection of one's own soul or you know, the anima or the animus on the other um, can be an especially Venus Neptune tendency of really, in some ways it's projecting the divine onto the beloved and, falling in love with that. And then I think Venus-Neptune people do often have to go through the challenge of having that image shattered, seeing the human faults of the person they've fallen in love with. And so it can create kind of a disillusioned experience over time too, if that happens again and again, for example, of, oh, this person isn't the, the sacred ideal that they thought I, um, or that I thought that they were, and it can go the other way too, of having that projected onto, onto one of, um, you know, kind of carrying, uh, anima or animus image for other people. And then they're disappointed that you're not that angel that they, they hoped you were. Um, so I think for the Venus Neptune person, it can go both ways. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that one's always doomed to fall in love with images and mirrors, and um, you know, seeking after a, a fairy tale ending of, in the beyond. Um, although maybe that impetus is always there, but um, I think it, what it, the journey can really be about is when you can recognize the divine spark in the other person in. Um, encased in their human flaws and faults and fall in love with that and recognize that they are the god that you've been projecting on them, but that it's because of their humanness, not in spite of it. And that's where um, Venus-Neptune can kind of come back to this world a little bit. Um, But it's such um, such a dreamy, romantic, um, oriented toward the angelic and the beyond kind of complex.
0: Yeah, um, as a Venus and Pisces person, I have explored these themes a lot. And I think that um, it was really validating to find astrology because it put language to this experience that I've been having. Um, And the way that I have this experience continues to evolve. But earlier in life, you know, these big loves, like it would always be such a profound opening experience to fall in love. And when the love would fall away, like the relationship ended or something, the devastation was just so archetypally deep and like the despair of it was so intense that I think that's part of why I'm on a spiritual path is yes. because I had to realize that the experience that I'd had was a realm of some kind that love in the form of human relationship had opened a portal to. And I found that I can get to that realm or live in that realm or contact that realm through many other means. Yeah, um, But sometimes, you know and for me it's been instrumental to have a relationship with spirit um but it is interesting to think about i i might be biased or you know it's but it feels to me that the need to contact spirit is universal like everyone has that basic longing but they'll project it onto other things potentially um and so it's just ultimately not very secure to project something as big as source or like the universe onto a particular person and mm-hmm. disillusionment is bound to happen.
1: Yeah. It's, it's too much for any one person to carry. And when that when that does inevitably shatter I mean it does it feels like being cast out of heaven exactly (laughs) paradise has been closed to you and you're left with this person (laughs) it's no longer that ideal um and I I do think that that can be another orientation in relation to Venus Neptune is that um really recognizing that it is a love of the divine and, um, being able to fall in love with spirit or with God or with, um, the, the unity of the cosmos. Um, so it's, it can be shattering, but it also can really be, um, a capacity to kind of fall in love with the the whole in some ways too, um, the entirety of everything um and recognizing the exquisite beauty and i use the word exquisite a lot i've been told <laughs> and um i think of that word as such a venus neptune word that uh it captures something of the beauty of the beyond of the numinous of the the sacred or the divine and um that's maybe one of those examples where it captured in one word, you can really feel the blending of those two archetypes, of the Venusian and the Neptunian.
0: Yeah, that um, has me thinking too that there was a point, you know, after this kind of original love experience and a feeling like I'd been cast out of heaven, which is actually the way that I would have put it into words, <laughs> definitely too, is that I learned that there's, it's a, Philosophical idea, but I guess I think of it as truth um, that there's this source that everything comes from. So the source is this like ultimate Neptunian image or like waves arriving out of an ocean. And that every satisfaction in life, everything that we value in life, ultimately comes from the same source so if you're in relationship to the source then you can experience this beautiful like all these waves and you can also feel a little bit more peace as the waves crash knowing that they'll come back up again Mm -hmm. um and it for me it even works too with like having that i have mercury and pisces as well like commerce in a way like i remember learning the philosophy that um God is the supply, so you don't have to worry about these particular channels that you're receiving abundance from. But if you are open to receiving abundance from the universe, suddenly money or gifts are seeming to appear out of nowhere um, because there's an openness to receive from the source. So I think for Venus-Neptune, that kind of um, dynamic relationship with God or with source and then seeing how it manifests in all these particular forms. And then it can be exquisite in every moment. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and and it can also bring up... Um, it, it can both be that and a sense of like eternal longing at the same time. Um, I'm just thinking about something... Uh, that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in his um, stories. And again, he's a Venus-Neptune person, so he's a great expression of this, where he talks about um, in the voice of the sea is the original music of creation. And that when we hear that call of the sea, it awakens in us this longing for something that we can't even name. And it's, um, this longing for that wholeness, that source, or as he's putting it, the original music of creation. Um, and that the beauty of that longing in some ways shows us our connection to it, the sense of, of belonging and that, um, this is maybe Saturn getting pulled back into the mix a little bit, too, that when we're incarnated, when we're in life, um, in an embodied experience, there always is this feeling at least of separation, even if at ultimately we aren't separate, but it's a feeling of it. And um, you can see so much in throughout our conversation here how all of the archetypes call in each other. We can't ever experience them really in isolation. They all need each other, and when we go as far as we can into one, it's like it calls up, it calls up the others to to balance things out. Because maybe that's the ultimate unity and wholeness is um, in that kind of balancing act. It's showing us a greater whole.
0: I really believe that can help people too with connecting with their natal charts, like if there's a particular planet that they would like to be having a better experience with. Um, and I think, you know, Venus, it's if there's relationship, if there's self-esteem problems, it It's related to Venus somehow. You don't necessarily have to go through Venus to improve your relationship with Venus, but maybe Venus is an aspect or even just another part of your chart. But if you animate and bring health to any part, it will help the whole in some way.
1: Absolutely.
0: I feel like there's
1: um, like gateways between the different aspects. And yeah, I've definitely had that experience with, with my own chart where there will be parts where I'm just like, Oh, like that feels so unintegrated. And that's just, does that have to be a part of me? And, um, being able to draw on the things that I do feel more comfortable with or at home with and how it can actually let me completely reorient to the things that I've been rejecting. Um, and, you know, try and draw, draw them back into a more integrated sense. Totally. Mm -hmm. So Venus-Pluto. <laughs> Let's go in the opposite direction from <laughs> Venus-Neptune. Let's go into the depths. Um, I mean, with Venus-Pluto, it's uh, it's such a rich aspect, um, such a, a rich combination, because Pluto itself is so complex and multifaceted. And um, Venus-Pluto can be the um you know loving with deep intensity and going to the depths in partnership there's it's definitely not superficial it's like we're gonna go we're gonna go deep we're gonna go all the way um there's there can be a willingness to go into uh the intense pain even and like a love of that there's a recognition of how that makes us alive um so it can be the, um, you know, intense expressions of beauty, like deep primal uh, colors or depiction, you know, coming back to looking at it through art, like the depiction of um, very raw subjects or what is uh, demonic or monstrous or terrifying or cathartic, what transforms us, what rips us apart. Um, it's the, it's the beauty of, of death and rebirth. It's the beauty of, um, of destruction and, um, or finding beauty within destruction and decay. And, um, I think of like Alex Gray, for example, the, the painter, he, um, uh apparently did a series painting a uh a dog that was had died and was rotting and he was painting it in its stages of decay so turning something that would be um disgusting or dying or dead or decomposing these are all such platonic words into art into beauty finding the beauty of um compost um in terms of love and relationship and sexuality I mean there is such a deep sexual component here because um if Venus is more like love and romance and sensuality and um and sexuality with the heart present Pluto is um it's instinctual it's you know Freud's id um it's the it goes from um you know, lovemaking to fucking like that difference and, um, the intensity that can be present in, um, in a Venus-Pluto relationship is pretty much incomparable. Uh, it can be, it, you know, it flirts with the edge of the taboo, the dangerous, um, the, even the disgusting and, um, and yet finds like eroticism within that, finds, um, attraction within that and desire within it.
0: Um, yeah. (laughs) That's such a good explication of it. Um, it's, that's kind of giving me a flashback of looking at my natal chart aspects like when I was in high school and just I don't know how prepared my consciousness was <laughs> to deal with the things that I read about mm-hmm. my chart but Venus and Pisces there are lots of things that could scare me about that but now I love that placement but also reading about Venus Pluto is was just like wow like am I really this edgy <laughs> but um yeah the like The death and rebirth processes through love too and just like the deepness of intimacy and merging that happens with Pluto added into Venus and um, that kind of deep I think of Pluto as like the roots or the underworld and how everyone's kind of unconscious or their root chakra or like these like lower realms the soul of people and then relating through that space so as a soul relating to another soul is really powerful it's different than two egos relating to each other but it's also the soul relating up through the ego to this you know and that kind of transformation and even death of the self that can feel is occurring when we're being neared by someone who sees or feels us at such a deep level that it's like that ego part of us is mm-hmm. kind of shattered maybe it can be so uh vulnerable and exposing i think for
1: that venus pluto side to be fully seen in relationship but it, i feel like That's in some ways what it's most craving, because that's where the transformation is. That's where the depth is. That's where the trust gets built by um, kind of ripping oneself open and saying, this is me. This is all of who I am with, um, you know, with our guts and hearts hanging out in this very
0: visceral way. Um, Do you know Marina Abramovich? I don't. Uh, She's a performance artist, but she had this one um, thing where she... So she would do like live performance art pieces, sometimes at museums. And I'm not sure what other settings, but she would put her hand on the table and then have this knife and she'd be like stabbing in between her fingers and she would start to go faster and faster. And it's like scary to watch. And she does end up like cutting herself and she would just do all these brutal art pieces. She even had one where in a museum she had like a loaded gun on a table and it was this performance piece where another person could you know and she had all these other objects and that she would just sit there and people could come up to her and interact with her in any way they want even pick up the gun put it to her head and you know there's no boundary there so they could conceivably shoot her but you know that pushes the edge that's murder obviously and but I think that it did get to a point in one of the exhibits where someone did do that and it created this immense sense of tension and fear in the whole room because it's like someone really went there and picked up the gun Mm -hmm. but i actually i haven't looked up her chart for a while so i don't know if she's venus pluto but she came to mind as like a aesthetic yeah i i have um i i didn't know her name
1: but i do know about that um that performance piece and that is such a great example um that would be fascinating to know if she has Venus-Pluto because it does feel very fitting in terms of really playing with that edge of danger and the taboo, and, but it's art. So there's Venus again, it's, it is art and very exposing. I mean, she was in, in putting her body on the line in that way, um, there is this openness to to abuse. Um, and that, you know, there can be that whole kind of element of like, of, um, of sexual abuse that can be an expression of that Venus Pluto archetypal complex, um, and that edge between abuse and power, um, which is so much of what, what Pluto has to do with. Um, and so in this case of Venus with Pluto is when it comes through, um, love or sexuality or relationship, uh, or, you know, the, um, sensuality of one's body and so forth.
0: Yeah. That makes me think so much of trust because I remember the early lesson that I learned about being so open in relationship and saying everything that was on my mind and, The first time or two that I had that experience of my own words, like the own, you know, the vulnerability that I shared being twisted and turned back on me as a kind of insult or a way to cut me, I was like, whoa, like I didn't, in this kind of naivete, I didn't imagine that someone would do that. And then when I realized that that was possible, um, it didn't make me guarded permanently in a sense, but I realized that trust is a really important part of the Pluto archetype where it's like, if you know very sensitive information about another person, it's not there to provoke them with, or, you know, but I think too, sometimes it's not intentional. It can be those heated arguments between partners where something is said, that's just so destructive or so damaging. Mm -hmm. Um, And someone with Venus, Pluto may have to learn how to wield the power of that aspect and use it in enhancing or constructive way and not kind of fall into the traps of the most kind of shadowy elements of that or the abuse side of it.
1: Absolutely. And I think that insight can even be applied to any Pluto aspect, um, is that we're learning how to be in relationship to whatever our power is and how we wield it, um, and how it can accidentally be destructive, um, accidentally cause harm or intentionally, but, um, in terms of how we're wanting to try and hold that power in the mo- most most in light in the most life enhancing way for ourselves or for others, um, Pluto is such an area to bring consciousness to. As you said, like it has that element of um, of the deep unconscious, and to always be in a lifelong practice of trying to awaken to it. And then with Venus Pluto to awaken to it and then fall in love with it
0: as well. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> You can catch the rest of this conversation on the next episode, the part two of this same conversation. And that is uploaded already today or whenever you listen to this. So go check it out to hear the rest of this conversation.